very excited because we have, I think, a fantastic class prepared for you today. So, with no further ado, let me begin by thanking our generous sponsor, our dear show member, Ami Meshlesh, for sponsoring today's class. He does so to honor the memory of his late mother, Mira Bat Eliyahu. May Hashem help that her neshama have an aliyah and that from her heavenly repose, she should have nachas, she should have pleasure from the Torah that is being studied by us right here in this world. You know, our sages tell us that when we study Torah here, they listen from the other world because uh, here is where Torah study is most profoundly meaningful. And today we're going to talk a lot about the here and now. The world that you and I occupy, our terrestrial reality, if you will. And we're also going to talk about a little bit about eternity. But primarily we're going to talk about this world, which is a bridge to eternity. You see, we occupy this terrestrial physical space. We are embodied in bone, plasma, flesh and sinew in order to create a future reality. Olam haba, a world to come. And that leads us into today's class. If you're following along in the Kihat edition, you can open to page 110, beginning of the fourth chapter. It's not going to do much for you. You're just going to get a very, very bare bones, basic text with a kind of a translation. And I think it needs a lot of elucidation. Because on the surface, what Rabbeinu B'chaya is going to be telling us is actually shocking. Shockingly out of order with our sacred Torah tradition. Or so it seems. Let's dive right in. In the previous episode, we began this fourth longest chapter of Shara B'Tochen by talking about this world and the world to come. And what in heaven does the world to come, paradise, the afterlife, or perhaps the messianic era, what does that have to do with betochen, with trust? That's a great question. <laughs> That's the focus of the previous episode. But now, as we move forward, we're going to go back to this world. And here's where it gets shocking. Let's talk about our world. The world of here and now. You and I. Here we are. This world, or the activities, the range or spectrum of engagement in this terrestrial everyday life, 
Yecholku l'shnei chalokim. Must be divided. Two categories. Two parts. Echad mehem. One part of life. In yonei ha'olam. Worldly things. Mundane. Pedestrian. Everyday activities. For the purpose of mundane, ordinary pedestrian things. Worldly matters. Worldly matters for the sake of worldly matters. And the second one, matters of this world, as they are impactful or meaningful in the world to come. That is to say, there are the things we do to sustain or enhance life here, and then the things we do to earn a slice of heaven, to be led, so to speak, to eternity. In case you're not sure what that means, let me share with you the annotation of the Neder Bakodesh. We talked a lot about him in the previous episode. A very unusual commentary written on the Shara Betochen, probably least studied and most underappreciated. His book was only printed once in 1790, and it's recently seen the light of print for the first time since. So the Neder Bakodesh, or Reb Moshe ben Reuven, says like this. What kind of activities bridge our world and the world to come? Or what kind of engagement leads us into that world? He says, you know, The things you do which are only impactful or meaningful, the things which are only beneficial in the world to come. Um, how so? <laughs> Really, very simply, says. The Talmud tells us in Mesechet of Odazara on page 3, Misha Torah be'erev Shabbos, Yochel b'Shabbat. If you want to eat on Shabbat Kodesh, now, assuming you want to eat on Shabbat, you probably are observant and you want to celebrate Shabbat, which is supposed to be done with a family meal. But you can't prepare food on Shabbat. It's one of the things that Shmirat Shabbat proscribes. So, pray tell, how would you enjoy food on Shabbat if you can't cook or prepare food on Shabbat? That's not such a mystery. Elementary, my Watson, Sherlock Holmes would have said. Simple, you prepare before Shabbat. How will we have hot food on Shabbat? I'm so glad you asked. Did you ever hear of Cholent or Chamin? The Torah doesn't say you can't leave something on the fire. The Torah just says you can't place something on the fire on Shabbat. And so, Jews from time immemorial, ever since we started cooking, and we, you know, we Jews and food have a long relationship. Ever since we got into the kitchen, we've been having food on Shabbat. In fact, the Balham Moir goes on a limb and he says, somebody who doesn't have warm food on Shabbat 
is like denying the Torah of Moshe itself. Because there was a group of renegade Jews who said, no, 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 you can't prepare food on Shabbat and you can't leave it on the fire either. And so Torah Jews have always made a point of eating warm food, hot food on Shabbat. There's only one way you can do that. You have to prepare it before. So let's talk about the afterlife. Let's talk about paradise. If you will, let's talk about the messianic era or maybe even the age of resurrection. All of this will be talked about in, in these episodes, but much later on. So, what's the difference between life now and life then? The answer is life now is lived in the dark. That is to say, we don't see the presence of God. We don't know the presence of God. We have to believe it. And as such, it's really difficult to choose to do the right thing. Which is what makes it so valuable and so meaningful. Simply stated, our Bechira Chafshit, our ability to choose to do the right thing, which is how we were tasked and empowered with manufacturing righteousness, is largely, almost entirely due to the fact that we can't see the effects of what we're doing. I can't prove to you that performing mitzvot is a good thing to do. You could argue that it's a waste of time. I can't demonstrate it to you in vivid color. I can prove to you that starving yourself is going to make you very hungry. That turning the lights out will disable you from seeing what's around you. But I can't prove to you that not living a life of Yiddishkeit is going to rob you of something because we don't see the impacts of mitzvahs. So we have freedom to choose. <laughs> That's why the lights are out. So we should choose to do the right thing and it's meaningful. When Mashiach comes, or God forbid if that doesn't happen before we end up on the other side, there's no contest. There's no choice. It's obvious. You don't have to be a rocket science to know that it's not a good idea to jump off the roof. Usually it doesn't end well. Or as they say, what happens if you go skydiving and it doesn't work the first time? They say, don't try it again. That's, that's a no-brainer. Nobody normal jumps into a fire. We run from an inferno. That's the way things are going to be in the world of Mashiach, or that's how it is for an Ashama, a soul in the other world. The truth is abundantly obvious. There are no atheists in heaven, and there will be no atheists in the era of Mashiach. Now, now they can proliferate. Why? Because our reality allows for it. In other words, simply stated, the only way you can actually build heaven is by living in the reality that can see and allows for you to deny heaven. There's a famous little metaphor, and I'll share it with you, although you probably have heard it from me before. A house builder. He's tired. He's worked his whole life, and he's ready for retirement. The developer comes and he says, listen, one more house. He says, please, I've done houses, I've built homes, I don't, I'm done, I'm done, I wanna retire, I wanna play golf, I wanna go fishing, I wanna go to sunny Florida, I don't wanna build anymore. He says, one more house, please. You've worked for me, you've been loyal, one more house. 
very, very begrudgingly. The fellow takes on that last mission. One final home. He does a shoddy job. He just wants to finish it. He doesn't care anymore. He no longer has any professional pride. He just wants out. He feels forced into this. He was arm twisted and he wants it to end. And cutting corners, he finishes quickly. And as he's about to leave, the developer says, hey, I just wanted to say we're really grateful for more than 50 years of hard work that you've put in with us. And that's why the home you just built, that was for yourself, as he hands in the keys. Imagine the regret that the builder feels. If only I would have known that I was building my own house. My friends, we are building our own house, our Mashiach house, our heavenly abode with the mitzvahs we do today. But it's not obvious. What you do today, insofar as mitzvot are concerned, will not benefit you. As the Gemara says, mitzvot lav lahanot nitnu, mitzvot were not given so that you'll gain something in this world. Schar bahai al-moleka, reward for mitzvahs, our sages intone, doesn't exist in this world. There is simply stated nothing as valuable as a mitzvah. Yes, it's true. Hashem will give us opportunity to do more mitzvahs, and that's how Maimonides explains the seeming earthly or terrestrial rewards that are available in this world, but that's not the real reward. It doesn't have the value of a mitzvah. And ultimately, it's really about our relationship with God, which is infinitely more valuable than all the gold and silver in the world. In the previous episode, I gave a simple metaphor. Suppose you could marry a girl you dislike, or a boy you dislike, intensely. But the family's got money, lots of it. You'll have a home and a summer home, a condo and a cottage, you name it. A boat, sure. There's millions where this future spouse comes from. They're just a miserable, disgusting person. And you have to live the rest of your life with a miserable, disgusting person. But you have lots of money. Or you can marry the love of your life. Have a beautiful, blissful marriage. But you'll struggle. Who in their right mind would choose number one? I don't think anybody, my friends. To turn your back on Hashem is to mitigate or to lose the opportunity to build a unique and special relationship with Hashem forever. But that relationship can only be achieved or built, nurtured, and developed right here. Here's where we do the things that God really appreciates and thanks us for. So the Neda Bakaydish says, this is what the meaning of Rabbeinu Bakai's words are. The second part of earthly, or what seems to be mundane, but actually with bodily engagement, physical, material, terrestrial engagement, isn't bodily mundane or material at all. It's actually very holy. It's a bridge to heaven. He says, it's for the benefit, not of this world, in the other world. Like the metaphor. You cook on Friday, read in Shabbat. What heaven we are talking about and how this remuneration translates or works itself out. 
patients. We'll get to that later on. We're going to talk about two levels of remuneration or reward and that which is engendered by virtue of our love, loyalty, devotion, and dedication to God during our terrestrial journey embodied in flesh and blood. So, if we're to understand what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar just said, he said that life is filled with two arenas, things which benefit us here, things which are about our material or pedestrian, everyday mundane reality, things I do for me, and then there's the things that have a purpose, a purpose that isn't seen, felt or known here, that's the bridge to eternity, that's the bridge to heaven. And in case that's not clear, he continues to spell it out now. Let's talk about things done in this world for the purpose of, well, this world. He says, okay, you're going to have three categories. And I'm going to come back to this in detail, but I'm going to just quickly go through it. He says, one is to'alot gufo bavad. One is just for you. Like health and wellness, you know. Eating, sleeping, drinking, relieving yourself. The second is your prosperity, your business endeavors. Tarpoi, sibas hainoi, your livelihood, your acquisition of various things, assets. And the third, you know, your, your family, children, spouse, your relatives, your friends, people you can't stand, and those who you have to kowtow to and those who kowtow to you. And that's all about you. That's, that's not about God. That's not about heaven. That's not about... That's mundane, ordinary, everyday stuff. And if you want to be successful, you have to have betochen. Because, let me just remind you, the reason we're having this conversation is we need to know how to have betochen. And because we need to know how to have betochen in a variety of different ways, so we're going to talk about these various different things because the level of trust in Hashem, as it has, so to speak, overlap or interplay with hishtadlut, or our efforts, the things we do to make them happen, varies. So we have to spell it all out, and then we're going to talk about detail by detail, dimension by dimension. Here is the kind of betochen is appropriate here. Here's what you're expected to do. Here's, how you, here's where you can rely on God. Now, I want to just put the brakes on here, and I want to tell you that what I just shared with you is positively shocking. Shocking. A simple read of Rabbeinu Bachaya's words are, life is comprised of things that are not connected to God, Yiddishkeit, Torah, mission, meaning, or purpose at all. It's all about you. I mean, me, us. Your health, your wellness, your money, your assets, your family, your friends, your social circle and interactions. The other part of life, oh, that's about God. That's about eternity. That's the bridge to the other world. What? You mean a full 50% or so of what we do has nothing to do with God, mission, or purpose? That's what he seems to be saying. Now I know you might be thinking, hey, oh, what's wrong with that? 
That is, incidentally, the way most people live their lives. True. And actually tragic. Tragic? Well, I'll tell you why. Tragic because it flies in the face of everything we've been taught. Let's take a step back from the words of Rabbeinu B'chaya, just, just for a couple of minutes. And I want to take you in a journey outside of the immediate body of scholarship that we're presently focused on. So Rabbeinu B'chaya writes his work towards somewhere near the end of the 10th or very early 11th century. Fair enough? A thousand years ago. Okay, that's nice. You understand that Rabbeinu B'chai can't and doesn't do things that deviate from sacred Jewish tradition. <laughs> Certain axioms that Rabbeinu B'chai builds on, not contradict. So let's talk about a Mishnah. Mishnah is the genre of teachings that were redacted in the first and second century. That old. And these teachings come back to Moses at Sinai. So there's a body called Pirke Avot, and then there is the codicil to the Pirke Avot Mishnah, which is called Avot the Rebbe Natan. It's considered like a minor tractate of Mishnah. It doesn't actually make its way into the genre of Mishnah itself, but it's of the same cloth. Many of the things found in Avot the Rebbe Natan are actually found in the Pirkei Avot itself. Only a little more explicitly here. Chapter 17 of Avast Rav Nassim is a quote from Rabbi Yossi. Yehi momen chavercha chavavalecha kishalach. You should value somebody else's possessions and wealth like you do your own. Incidentally, that's in the Mishnah of Pirkei Avot. Vahatken atzmacha lil matorah. You need to roll your sleeves up and toil if you want to succeed at Torah study. She'eni Yerushalach. Can't say, well, you know who my grandparents are? They were pious and learned people. And my parents are very learned and pious too, so I'll be pious and learned. It doesn't work that way. You'll be pious and learned if you choose to educate yourself and embrace piety. This is not something which one receives by virtue of a hereditary inheritance. You may receive a predisposition, a genetic predisposition, but what you do with that predisposition is your doing. And you are doing alone. Jacob and Esau. Yaakov and Esau. One of the most righteous human beings ever to walk the face of the earth shares a womb with one of the greatest monsters of all time a murderer, a rapist, an abuser on every level. They shared the womb. <laughs> they actually were once one embryo, but that's a subject for another day. They had the same parentage. They had the same grandparentage. They made the choices for which they are held responsible given the credit or the demerits. 
So that's how it is with Torah study. And by extension, that's what Yiddishkeit's really all about. The end of this chapter is a very interesting chapter which talks about a number of things, most of which are recorded in Midrashic bodies of teaching, some of which is not found elsewhere. At the end of the chapter, in Mishnah 7 of the 17th chapter, it says, quote, All of your deeds should be for the sake of heaven. That is to say, L'shem Torah, for the sake of Torah. Shenemar, as it is written, B'chol in all of your ways, Da'ehu, you must know him. And if you do that, V'hu, Yosher, Orchotecha, he will, so to speak, straighten the path for you. So, Yasher, Orchotecha is what Hashem promises he does for you if, B'chol, now, some of the Mepharshim on Avastar Abnasan suggest that this is a continuation of the opening of the chapter. The opening of the chapter says, you need to study Torah, you've got to educate yourself, don't expect knowledge to come to you by osmosis. And we hear that because, every single experience should be a learning experience. Many a wise person has said, the day you stop learning, is the day you stop living. Living meaningfully, at least. Everybody can teach us something. Some people teach us what not to do, how not to live, but we can learn from everybody. Now, that is to say, if we are going to learn from everybody, then ultimately, all of our experiences become a pathway towards Torah, the knowledge of God. And yet, it's not exactly so in the commentary called Binyan Yehoshua, which is printed alongside the Avastad Abnasan. He says, you must know that there's a teaching which is found in Mesechet Brachot. Dorash Bar Kapora. The Mishnah Exage Bar Kapora expounded what is just a tiny portion of the scripture, which all of Yiddishkeit kind of hinges on. And he said, I'll tell you, this verse, Mishle, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, in all of your ways you know him. And it doesn't just speak about Torah per se. What it means is, afilu dvarim shall reshut, even things which are pedestrian, mundane, you know, electives. There's no moral or mission, a mitzvah mandate. Like eating, drinking. When I talk about eating matzah or drinking kiddush wine, I talk about eating and drinking. You know, regular breakfast, lunch, supper kind of thing. Halicha, take a walk, a little mobility, a little exercise, yeshiva, relax, stay put. Talks about relationship, intimate relationships, social interactions. All of these things have to be la'avodat boracha, for the sake of your creator. That's what the Mishnah means. It's like 
There is no other pshat, no other way to understand this Mishnah. This is the meaning of the Mishnah, he says. If you take a look at the verse itself, incidentally, the Mitzudot David says, And whatever you do, know God. What does that mean? What does it mean to know God? How do you know God when you're having breakfast? He says, Ten Be mindful. At all times. To perform whatever activity and do whatever it is you're doing, all of that should be done for a purpose. To fulfill the will of God. This is the commentary of Mitsudot David on the verse in Proverbs. It's pretty clear. There is no mundane, ordinary, pedestrian part of life. It's all about knowing God. Maimonides, Rambam, in his introduction to Mesechet Avot, which incidentally is called Shmona Prokim, it's called the Eight Chapters. So in the fifth chapter, he states the following. The opening headliner is, When a person utilizes the wherewithal of one's consciousness, it has to be It has to be for one purpose. Singularly focused. Says the great Rambam, a person is required to subjugate, to harness his powers of consciousness, all of them so that they be intelligent. And all of them in a direction of acquiring knowledge. Knowledge, says Rambam, is how we connect to God. Consciousness is how we connect to God. To live a life of God consciousness, a life of profound awareness of the Creator. How mindful can I be? I don't know. However mindful you can be, that's how mindful you're expected to be. As much as a person can know God. Some people are brighter, some people are more profound. If you have a deeper mind and a higher consciousness, you're expected to know God at a more essential or all-saturating fashion. And if you're more of a simpleton, but you'll know God as best as you can. God gave each of us a unique set of ability, unique mind, imagination. Use it well. Rambam is very clear about this. And he says it means that one has to be intentful. Eating and drinking. Mizgalo, your intimate conduct. Shnato, you gotta sleep. Yikitsato, you gotta wake up, hopefully. So everything from going to sleep to waking up and everything in between is supposed to be purposeful. Tnuatno, umenuchato. You're in motion. You're at rest. 
whatever it may be. Whatever you're doing. Rambam says the divine intention in the creation of your bodily terrestrial existence. So that your body is well functioning, healthy, balanced. So that you can become wiser, wiser in Torah, more knowing, deepening your relationship with God. You know, it's like you build a relationship with somebody. How do people decide that they want to get married and spend the rest of their lives with each other? How do they decide that this is the person I want to build my family with? They get to know each other. They date. How do you date God? Well, we don't get to see him in this world, but he does send a lot of emails. So you just have to read what he says. Because... The Torah is God speaking to us. Rambam says that's exactly how we should view every moment of life. God speaking to us. We should use every experience to deepen our appreciation of and understanding about Hashem. Towards the end of the fifth chapter, the Rambam finishes off by saying, First he says, and this is just an excerpt, it's a, it's a, it's a couple of pages of the chapter. Everything has to be seen or viewed purposefully. Whether it's gufo, mitsuyuto. You want to be healthy? Everybody wants to survive? It's all kedei sheyesharu klikochot nafsho, so that you will use this wherewithal bodily ability. You know, life, the gift of life. V'tis asik nafsho b'limenel b'maylas hamidas or b'maylas asichlis, and then you can invoke and engage and immerse yourself in the acquisition of fine character traits that means to work with who you are by nature and make it better. You know, to tinker with your own personality. Some of us are a little selfish. Some of us are mean. Some of us are arrogant. Some of us are slothful. Some of us are pleasure-seeking in embarrassing ways. Well, we have to work on elevating, sublimating, transforming that. That's what life's about. Life's about acquiring the knowledge you don't have. Deepening your understanding of things. And all of this is with the singular focus of nurturing your personal relationship with God. Maimonides Rambam finishes off and he says, this is actually what God asks of you. God expects you to be connected to Him in a loving way. He asks or commands us, We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. 
says the Rambam, what this verse means to say is bechol chelke nafshecha, with every, if you will, piece of your existence, with every dimension of your ability and consciousness. Shatasa tachlis kol chelek mimenu, that everything you have, from eyes to hands, from feet to digestion, from consciousness to emotion, and all the other things that we're gifted, that these have to be tachlis achat, a singular, singular purpose. And the singular purpose is la'ahavat Hashem yizbarich, to become connected, lovingly connected to God. And this is the meaning that the prophets intoned in Proverbs 3, Behold you know him in all your ways. Towards the end of the chapter, Ramah finishes off, and that's why our sages taught, All of your deeds should be for the sake of heaven. So here, Rambam inverts. He doesn't speak, He first quotes the verse, the Pasuk, the scripture from Proverbs, and then he says, that's what our sages meant. So Rambam understands the words of Avastar Ibn Nasan, pretty much as I just shared with you. It's like abundantly obvious. The Rambam not only writes this in his commentary to the Mishnah, which is more philosophical, but as we'll see in a few moments, he rules this way in halachic prose as well. Before we get to, though, that halachic prose of how we are supposed to view this philosophically, I want to share with you the way Rabbeinu Yonah, the 13th century sage, uh, a teacher of uh, the Rashba, a peer of Nachmanides, how Rabbeinu Yonah explains this passage, because he wrote a commentary on Mishli. He says, if you will take a look in the verse prior to verse 6, you will see it talks about you guessed it, bitachon, trust in Hashem, that is the subject, of course, of, of this whole series, trust. He says, it says, Hashem trust in God with all your heart. You're not that smart. Don't rely on your own understanding. Says Rabbeinu Yena, means wholeheartedly, not lip service, don't play a game. Seriously, trust him. You need to do this. For real. Do not allow doubt to eat away at your trust. So it's about trust. That's very much the subject we've been learning. Then Rabbi Nuyena comes along and he says, what is the meaning in the next pasuk? First of all, the Pasuk says, I'll be noschal to show you, don't rely on your own intelligence. He says that Shleimus Real trust in Hashem means that you don't rely on anybody else, including yourself. You trust Hashem. And then verse 6 comes along. In all of your ways. You know him, says Rabbeinu Yoyna, 
In anything you do. Remember God. Be mindful of God. Place your hope in God that he will grant you success. And put your trust in him, not people. Take to heart. The end result is never in your hands. Never. Rabbeinu Yoyna understood verse 6, to be a continuation of verse 5. He says, this adds to the idea of This adds to the instruction that we should be serving Hashem wholeheartedly. There are some people who are called Bali Betochem, they trust in God. Umaymen, they believe. Hakol everything is in the hands of heaven. They trust in Him. They don't put the trust in other people. They know things will go well, not because somebody promised. Somebody's here today, gone tomorrow. I sleep peacefully at night because I trust Hashem. And I don't rely on my own intuition or wherewithal a power. The lobekocha v'sichlo. Ach, but, despite the fact that I have the proverbial right attitude, I know what's right. I know that it all comes from God. I get all of that. Yeah, okay, I get all that. Fine. But, even if I get all that, he says, lo yiftach he doesn't, so to speak, take it down into the details. Which details? He's got all the right ideas. All the things you do. We do a lot of things. We're busy a whole day. And that's precisely the meaning of Bechol Drachecha Deehu. You don't have the power. You don't have the wherewithal. You don't have the ability. You can't guarantee anything. It's all in Hashem's hands. You can make the best effort. And in fact, you're obligated to make the best effort. That's what we're trying to figure out in this Shara B'Tochen now. How much effort do I have to make since anyway, the end result isn't within my hands. Well, if it's not in my hands, why do I have to make any efforts? If God will will it to be, it'll be. No, you still have to make effort. Why? I'm glad you asked. Stay with us. We have quite a journey ahead of us, and we're going to understand exactly how much effort we have to invest in every situation. And when we can say, hey, now it's in God's hands. But the point of the verse is, that you need to work at taking every moment of life and spiritualizing it, filling it with a focus on the Creator. The Benuyina says an amazing things. Work at it. And you will develop and nurture this trust. People have asked me, how do you, how do you get that trust? My answer is very simple. I'm working on it. 
I don't, I don't have it more than you, necessarily. We all have to work at it. How do you work at it? Well, first of all, you've got to study the things we're studying. If you don't have a clear understanding of it, you'll never get anywhere. But after you work at it, you have to put it into practice. And the more you habituate yourself, the more you do this repetitively, it becomes second nature. Incidentally, this is a Maimonidean idea about generosity. He says, force yourself. The more you force yourself, the more generous you'll actually become. Modern psychology fully embraces this, by the way. The Rambam says that's the meaning of the Mishnah, Hakol Efiroi Vamaisa. It all depends on how many times you do it. Maimonides tells us that if you give charity a hundred times, it's better than giving a hundred dollars to one person. That doesn't mean if somebody needs a hundred dollars and you can afford it that you should ask him to come back five minutes later for a dollar and come back another five minutes for a dollar and torture a person. We'll talk about that later on. Sadaka is actually not about you. It's actually about the recipient. The point, however, is getting involved in doing many, 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 many copious acts of holiness will change us. How do you have betachen? Well, you just have it. You just keep working at it. It's every time you feel your anxiety rising, every time you feel yourself getting worried and concerned and fearful, you say, what are you doing? Trust in Hashem. Constant mindfulness. Constant return to a focus on God. And it becomes habit. And as Hasidus explains it, ultimately we're revealing who we really are. It's like a person who has a natural aptitude or gift for music or art, for athletics or maybe drama, that through continuous practice, you make perfect. You hone your ability and you tone your talent. Well, that's a talent every one of us has. We can all be trusters in Hashem. We can all live in a trusting way. We have to do it. So in everything you do, Rabbeinu Yenin finishes off, whether it's elective, mundane, whether it's mitzvah. That's basic Judaism. And not only is it basic Judaism, it's basic betochen. And here Rabbeinu Bechaya is talking to us about betochen, and he like ignores all this. He doesn't even talk about it. It's like it didn't happen. He says there's the parts of things you do for yourself and then there's the things that are a bridge to heaven. <laughs> I, I, I'm serious and I'm telling you this is shocking. The Rambam's son, Rabbi Avraham, wrote a book, Hamaspik Loiv De Hashem. Here's what you need to be a servant of God or to live life meaningfully. One of the things you need is trust, he said. The talking. it's the eighth chapter. So he says... And again, this is translated from a Hebraic, Hebrew-Arabic. It was only translated in the 1930s, written uh, in the 12th century in Hebrew-Arabic. And at a certain point, people stopped reading it because nobody speaks, spoke the language anymore. But uh, as it's translated into Hebrew, he calls it a reliance on Hashem for, proverbially speaking, religious matters. I'm not so sure if the right translation was originally religion. I have a feeling it was more about, you know, spiritual pursuit of serving God. But let's, let's use the word religion. The Rambam son writes the following. 
He says, you have to know. Whenever your betochen, whenever your trust in Hashem has a religious purpose to it, meaning a spiritual purpose attached to it. Then that's a better form of trust whose aim, goal, or objective is material or personal satisfaction. And he says something very interesting. Even if somebody is going to place his trust in Hashem, he says, I know God's going to give this to me. You don't really need it. So why are you placing your trust and making expectations and relying on God to give it to you? You don't need this for your survival. He says, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I, I, I want it for a sacred purpose. And the other person, he's like, just wants the bare minimum. Doesn't have, so to speak, in Yiddish they call it Gresa Egin. He's not looking all over the place and seeing what this one has, that one has. He's very happy with whatever he has. But doesn't think about God. It's just about, you know, got to live. He says, for example, Two people, both of them live anxiety-free, worry-free, fear-free lives. Which one be one of those people? One is certain, God will provide for him. We, we talked about this so much in previous episodes. God provides for all the animals. He provides for me too. Lechem, lechel, beg it a little bit. You know, you got to have food. You got to you can't go around naked, you gotta wear something. It doesn't have to be an Armani suit, whatever. Polyester works, jeans work for him too. But his purpose, purpose is materially minded. He's looking for me. I need, I need the basics, but I need. I don't wanna be ashamed. I don't wanna to have to stick my hand out. I don't have to ask anybody. I don't have to receive any gifts from anybody. He is not motivated to seek out and nurture a deeper relationship with the Creator, live life missionfully and purposefully. Kenegda, on the other hand, we have another Beteach, another trust-filled person. And this person, he's got all kinds of expectations. He wants lots of money. He says, God, come on, make me rich, very rich. He wants children, I want power. I want the ability to do as I please, when I want. Yeah, but it's not about me. This guy actually says, Tachlisoy, his goal, Basogas, to get the money is, He wants to make sure to take care of those in need. That's why he wants the success. He wants to do good things. I know people like this. There are, there are good people out there. There are good people out there who, who want to do good things. And they need a wherewithal and ability to do it. To, so to speak, support the weak. He wants to be a positive force amongst those who seek out a life of service and spirituality. Like the wealthy administrator of the king of northern Israel, the wicked king of northern Israel, I should say was Avadya. Avadya was a servant of Hashem. He was a convert. He was a fantastic person. He used all of his wealth, lechalkel nevi Hashem, to provide for Hashem's prophets. And here's a person who wants, he wants wealth. Who is the better, more spiritual, more appropriate of the two? The one who says, I don't need anything, just the basics. 
but he's not thinking about Hashem. And the other person who's got a huge appetite, but his ultimate objective is to use it purposefully. The intuitive thing is to say the first guy. Rambam's son says, wrong. The second one's trust. It's much more appropriate. Yeser Shalom. It's more balanced. It's more right. And he says, the greatest level is to have a betochen and Hashem only for the things that I need for a holy purpose. And this is, he says, what Yaakov, Father Jacob, epitomized. He said, and if God will be with me, he'll guard me, Shmonani Baderach. And he says, Yaakov's only goal was so that I could have time to devote myself to holy things. That's the purpose of Betachar. And yet, <laughs> here we are, listening to Rabbeinu Bechaya tell us that, no, 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 there's Betachar for the godly things the goodly things, you know, the mitzvah, mitzvah materials, and then there's the mundane things. I, I mean, really? What in heaven is going on here? I promise you I would share from the Rambam's ruling. You'll forgive me. I'm just going to grab the book. So the Rambam, in the end of the third chapter of Hilchot Deot, which is the rules of, uh, you know, the right attitude, appropriate perspective on life. He says in halachic terms, not just philosophical terms, this is halacha. He says a person, a person should take to heart or endeavor to keep himself healthy. So that he is in a state of ability to know God. You can't spend time peering into or investigating the wisdom when you're starving, when you're sick. You're in deep pain. Rambam goes on to talk about building a family. He says you should build a family. Why? So that you have somebody to take care of you and feel good? Somebody to put you in an old age home? No, he says. Maybe this child of yours will be a great person. A person of great wisdom. A person of great wherewithal. And they'll make a real contribution. Maybe you don't make a big contribution. But maybe you'll produce a child who will. Of a person who's going to do this. Meaning, you look at every situation, whether it's health or family. You're always serving God. It's the exact opposite of what Rabbeinu Bechaya just said, for heaven's sake. He said everything is serving God. I feel the nice, have a nice, and you're doing business, when you're involved in your intimacy. Your thought, your mind, your attention. To all of this is, an intention is, 
I'm seeking one objective, namely, I should have the ability to serve Hashem. You might not even be consciously aware you're sleeping. But you're sleeping. So you can rest up. So your body can rest. So you don't get sick. Because if you get sick, you can't serve God. Nimtza comes out. Even your sleeping hours are also service to Hashem. Everything is a bridge to paradise. Everything is a bridge to eternity. Everything is a part of creating that futuristic messianic reality. As the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, Kol Maisim, all the things that are done, Meshech, the, the, the span of the whole period of creation, is all leading to Yemaisa Mashiach. We are building that proverbial home for God, that beautiful, perfect world is going to be made of every single ounce of holiness invested by you and I and our predecessors going back to the beginning of time. Quite literally. This is exactly what the sages meant when they said, Everything you do should be for the sake of heaven. And guess what Rambam says? This is what Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon meant, in his divinely inspired wisdom. Scripture. In all of your ways, you know him. By the way, this is not just found in the writings of early Rishonim. This filters down into halacha. The actual code of conduct that we, the Jewish people, follow today. This very idea is spelled out in the Tur, which is the forerunner of the code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch, in chapter 231. And I'm going to read to you from the words of the Tur. In everything, your intention in going through life should not be self-gratification or the fulfillment of your own desires or achievement of your own sensual libido. Everything you do, everything should be for a singular purpose, to strengthen yourself so that you will be able to live a life of service and spirituality. There is pleasure. It doesn't mean that uh, intimacy has to be a miserable thing. It doesn't mean you have to eat food that tastes disgusting. There's pleasure in this world. It's not a sin to experience pleasure. But the question is, what's my motivator? Am I eating to stay alive and healthy? Or am I eating to entertain and gratify myself? Let that not be your focus. Let that not be your intention. Rather, serving Hashem. As it says, It's a verse. Scripture. And our sages said, Our sages expounded on that verse. They said, everything should be for the Shem Shemai. 
And here the Torah, Rabbeinu Yankev Balaturim, quotes Rabbeinu Yoyna, and he says, this is how Rabbeinu Yoyna explained the Mishnah of Achom HaSechel HaShem Shomayim, Afilu, Dvarim Shal Reshut, even elective things, Achila, Vashtiya, Vahalicha, Vayishiva, Vakim, Vatashmish, Vasicha, all the things, eating, drinking, sleeping, going, coming, traveling, resting, intimacy, conversation, social interaction, building relationship, and anything that's done for your bodily needs. Everything. From the table to the treadmill. All of this should be done for a sacred purpose. And he says, if you do it to satisfy your own desires or needs, it's not praiseworthy. Rather, your focus should be to fill the needs of the terrestrial body to serve Hashem. You getting the message? It's in Shulchan Aruch too. Unfortunately, this is one of those chapters that we don't have in the Alter Rebbe's Shulchan Aruch, but in the big Shulchan Aruch, it's spelled out even more clearly. Chapter 231 has a header, and the header is Shekol Kavanatov, all of your intentions. Yiyu l'shem shabayim, be for the sake of heaven. The Shulchan Aruch Rabbeinu Yosef Karo, the Shulchan Aruch rules that even in the little bit of things that one does to immerse himself or to engage in physical material things, Lotehei Kavanato Lohanat Haguf, that should not be the focus of life. The focus of life should be Lahachzigufo Lavodat Hashem Yisbarach. Whatever enjoyment there is, let that not be your focus. Enjoy, whatever. But that's not what it's about. It should be serving Hashem. And he goes through the same verbiage lifted from the Torah. Everything. Table to treadmill. It's all in here. All of these things should be for the sake of heaven. Even if you were thirsty, you were love, you were hungry. If you ate to slake your thirst and satisfy your hunger, it's not appropriate. Rather, you should do it to serve Hashem. The Shulchan Aruch goes further and he says, even if we speak about knowledge, and a higher calling, academia, even to be in the company of righteous individuals. If you do it for your own self-gratification, to indulge. I want to be wise. I want to be appropriate. I want to be moral. I want to be respected. It's all about me. Me, 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 and then some more me. He says, I'm really sorry. You, you don't get any accolades here. Nobody's impressed here. And then he says further, when it comes to things like intimacy, he says, if you did it only out of lust and desire, just for your own satisfaction, he's a maguna. He says, it's repugnant. So what do you do it for? With a purpose. Building a family, deepening your relationship. 
he says, in everything, you should look and ask yourself, does it bring me closer to serving Hashem or not? And if not, in love, then don't do it. You only do things which are a bridge to heaven. And the one who does this, is He's always serving Hashem. In Lakut Sikhis, in Chile Gimel, it's on page 209. And it's one of the books I've forgotten. It's too far away to go get. The Rebbe speaks about, in a sicha, in a talk on Pasha's Trum, an edited talk, he talks about this idea that we had to take the gold, the silver, the copper, the various animal skins, and the fabrics, 13 or 15 different items, which are spelled out depending on what system of nomenclature you use. You have to use those for making the mishkan. And the Rebbe sees this as being a paradigm for life itself. He said, in the same way that we didn't only utilize these things in order to serve Hashem, they became vessels and vehicles for God's presence itself. It became the Mishkan. The Rebbe says the real meaning of the real meaning of the fulfillment of these teachings is that not only we do business in an honest fashion, but that the business itself becomes sanctified and holy. All of our activities become holy themselves, not only because they have a bridge to heaven, but because they become heavenly. It's even more than a bridge to heaven. So you're serving God not, not only because these are a means to an end, it becomes an end within itself. And the metaphor the Rebbe uses is like eating on Shabbos, that the delight we have on Shabbos from our Shabbos food is actually a part of serving Hashem. He says the things you do because you're doing them intentfully and focused, it becomes an act of servitude. Incidentally, in a footnote, the Rebbe talks about the fact that Rambam, that we just quoted before, first in Mishnah Torah chooses to quote a teaching from our sages and only afterwards does he quote the scripture. Where in the code of Jewish law, first they quote scripture and then they quote Mishnah teaching, which makes sense. That's kind of logical. It's true that in Avastad Abnasan it says it that way, but in Avastad Abnasan, this is the teaching. And he says, this is the teaching because so it is written. But Rambam's order is strange. And especially because when it comes to the Rambam in the Shemona Prakim that we, that we spoke about before, he first quotes the verse and only later quotes the teaching. The Rebbe gives a fascinating explanation. The Rebbe says that this is because kol ma'asech yulashem shomaya means everything is done with a purpose, a means to an end. But b'chol de'ehu means in every iota of engagement, whatever I do, I know Hashem in this. Not only it leads me somewhere, it becomes sanctified and hallowed in and of itself. So, what is Shabbat Abhaya talking about when he says, well, there's two parts of life. There's the things in this world which are for material purpose and the things in this world which serve as a bridge to heaven. Just to final, a final drive home this point. There's a fascinating verse which is found in Parsha Toldot. It speaks about our father Isaac. And we know that the things that the Torah tells us about the patriarchs and matriarchs were intended as lessons for us to replicate. 
as Maimonides puts it, Maisa Avot quoting our sages, he develops this idea very, very richly that the things they did are supposed to become lessons for us. We walk in those footsteps. We try to emulate their behavior. So the Torah talks about Yitzchak's foray into agriculture. Yitzchak the farmer. Vayizra Yitzchak. And he says the Pirkei Rebelezer, which is the teachings of the teacher of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Lezar Godel, in his Midrashic teaching, he wrote, V'chi Yitzchak Zara Dogan. What do you think? Yitzchak was a farmer? Farmer Jack? Farmer Isaac? Nah. Chas v'shalom. Heaven forfend. Hope no farmer's listening. We got offended. He was about creating wealth so he could give tzedakah, he could give charity. There are needy people. He wanted to be the one who could grow the grain and then provide it for them. Kamoda Amra says, we know the verse says, plant for the sake of righteousness. So Isaac is planting, but he's not a farmer. He's planting for righteousness. The Rebbe says, what's going on over here? What, is there something wrong with being a farmer? Do you know that the major activity, the occupation of most Jewish people in antiquity in the land of Israel was farming. That was the number one gross national product. It wasn't high-tech. It was once agriculture. Like, what do you mean? Chas v'shalom. Those are very strong words. Heaven forfend! Isaac should plant. What's wrong with planting? So the Rebbe gives a beautiful explanation. He says, we have this idea that's developed in the teachings of Hasidus, in Torah Or of the Alter Rebbe, and especially in Torah Chaim of the Mitla Rebbe, that we, we, we note the, the fact that most of the occupation that we know of, of Abraham and of Isaac himself to some degree, but certainly with regard to Jacob, was shepherding. And Jacob's children were also all shepherds. So they were always shepherding. And all of a sudden, Isaac is a farmer here. What's going on? So Hasidic philosophy explains that the Avot did the utmost they could to involve themselves in spirituality. And they sought vocations or occupations that would free them from earthly involvement. So you take the sheep out to the field and then you can pray. You can meditate. <laughs> you can do all kinds of spiritual things. But planting is backbreaking work. So the Rebbe suggests that what the Pirkei Rebbelez is saying here is, why did Isaac involve himself in backbreaking work, which would diminish his spiritual involvement? He could have done what his father and his son did. Why did he opt out? Ah, the answer is, he did it for a holy purpose. And therefore, it was an act of serving Hashem. Anyway, this is just a few, a few of the sources that can be used to develop this idea. It's pretty clear that the words of Rabbeinu Bahaya need to be somewhat better elucidated. Like, like something serious is missing here. Well, my friends, the truth is that our reading of Rabbeinu Bahaya obviously is wrong. This, I believe, is the proper reading. And I now, I just wanted to prove to you that I'm, instead of just reading it, I proved to you it has to be this way. Of course, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar understands and believes that everything we do is a bridge to heaven. 
But he says there are some things whose impact can be seen in this world. And some, some things whose impact cannot be seen in this world. It's easier to say to somebody, you know what? Just trust in God. The person said, what do you mean? Is that going to pay my bills? What are you worried about? Just trust in God. So I don't have to do anything? Well, I didn't really say that, but just trust in God. I mean, if it works or doesn't work, it's going to be very obvious in a very short amount of time because there's an immediate kind of result here. You come to a person and say, do a mitzvah. You say, well, how do I know this mitzvah is effective? I don't know this mitzvah is meaningful. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's meaningful somewhere else. Really? Yeah, and you have to believe that. Oh, okay, so I could trust God. It's gonna... And what if I don't do the mitzvah? You do your best. You, you do your part. If a person works hard at doing a mitzvah, and then he finds out that he didn't actually fulfill the mitzvah. You know, there's these heartbreaking stories of people who put on tefillin or had a mezuzah hanging for years and then found out that the mezuzah they affixed to the tefillin they're wearing weren't kosher. Or were never kosher. It's like, so what did I do all that for? He said, well, you made the effort to do a mitzvah. Hashem certainly values the effort. But shouldn't I have checked my mezuzah? Oh, well, that's, you didn't do your part. Should I have checked my film? Oh, you didn't do your part. So there's an interplay between what I'm responsible for and what I can leave in Hashem's hands. It's a little easier for me to swallow this idea that I do my part, God does His part, when I don't see the immediate results. But when I see results, or the lack thereof, it gets much harder. The point then is this. Each of these categories is going to have its own system or guideline for how much bitachen or trust, reliance I have to have and, and how much I have to do my part in. So for example, can a person say, I'm not taking medicine. If God wants me to be healthy, He'll make me healthy. Or, are we going to say, well, since by the rules of nature, the medication can make you better, and you elected not to take that medication, you didn't do your part. To which you'll counter and say, well, there's 80% of the people who take this medication, and it's effective. There's 20% of the people who take this medication, it has no impact, or maybe 10% that has no impact, and 10% that it has a negative impact on. So what if I end up being the 10% that this medication is actually going to harm me? Instead, I prefer to go with the CN wait-and-see approach. I don't want to do anything. They say, well, that's 80% that it helps, and 10% is not going to do anything. And 10% is going to harm. And a person says, well, I'm worried about that 10%. And as we talked about so many times, actuarial science technically isn't really science because when you keep throwing that coin up in the air, each time is a 50% chance of heads or tails. How many heads or tails come before or after has no bearing on this toss. So a person says, I'm going to take that medicine and I'm going to be the 1% that dies from it. I don't want to take it. I leave it in God's hands. Does the person have the right to say that? Or is that called relying on a miracle? These are very real practical questions. The person can say, look, I invest my money. I might lose all my money. I know people who invest their money and lost everything. 
I know people who invest their money and made millions. But how do I know which person I'm going to be? You know what? If God wants me to have millions, I'm just going to sit and do nothing. I'll sit and study Torah all day long. And God surely appreciates that. So he'll send the money. Can I say that? No. You've got to go do business. Oh, the guy picks himself up, does business. And guess what? Now he's penniless, lost anything. He says, I wish I wouldn't have listened to you. You told me to go and do business. I went and did all my research. I made all the smart investments. My luck. My bad luck. Everything went sour. I should have done nothing. And I would have the money now. Or do we say, hey, hey. You, know, you did the right thing. You did what you're supposed to do. The same question could be asked about vaccines. And it's being asked now. And there's a huge arena of, de of a debate. I'm not getting involved in it. Go ask your local Orthodox rabbi. I'm responsible to my balabatim, to my shul, to my people who ask me a shayla. I have to answer them. I don't have to go on record for the whole world. I'm not a world-renowned posik. The point is, these are real questions. Questions that get involved with every ounce of our lives. How hard do I have to work at making a relationship with somebody? If they want to have a relationship with me, that's up to them. So, well, you should bend your fat of shape. Should I? Why can't I just trust in Hashem? I'll do the right thing. If God wants me to have a relationship with Him, I'll have a relationship. If God doesn't want it, it's not going to be anyway. You told me I should exercise, eat healthy. I know a guy who exercised, eat healthy. He died last week. So, well, you know, he was going to die anyway. So maybe I ought to die anyway too. How do you know? So at what point do I say, I leave it in Hashem's hands? Or at what point do I say, I need to do the very best I can? How much is the very best? Should I spend 10 hours a day involved in exercise? Should I never allow a morsel of sugar to pass my lips because sugar is bad for you? Do I have a halachic obligation to buy organic vegetables or can I buy the vegetables everybody else is buying? <laughs> Real questions. I want to live a life of certainty. I want to live a life knowing anxiety. I don't worry about it. I eat what everybody eats. Should I be using a cell phone? Is it causing illness? Everybody else is. Well, maybe I should live in the dark ages. Maybe I shouldn't get involved with technology at all because who knows what it's doing to us? Who does know what it's doing? I don't know. These questions pepper every single element of life. And the point is that the way a person exercises trust in Hashem, for example, in their health, is different from the way one will exercise trust in Hashem when dealing with family, a friend, a business associate, or even an adversary. Rebbeinu B'chaya is not trying to tell us that the things we do aren't a bridge to eternity, or they aren't all for a purpose. Of course it's purposeful. That's not his point here. I know this to be so, because in the end of the third chapter, he already completed that thesis. <laughs> if you remember, just go back a couple of episodes ago, when we talked about mindset. We talked about exactly this. Rabbeinu B'chaya taught us that a person who involves himself in the pursuit of a livelihood is actually serving Hashem and doing something good and holy, even if that effort bore zero impact and didn't turn a dime of a profit. 
Why? Why? Because when you get lots of profit, it's not because of your efforts either. But you need to do your part. Rabbeinu Bechayah told us that when a person goes to work and does what's necessary in procuring a livelihood, he's actually fulfilling a pre-sin commandment before the original sin. It was the first thing God told Adam and Eve. As we discussed at great length a couple episodes ago. So the point here is how everything requires a different level of betochen. Every detail in life. These are real questions. Questions that a truth-seeking person is going to ask all the time. Great. Stay with us. We're going to go through these painstakingly, one at a time. It's going to take us many episodes. But hey, it's about the journey. And that's why Rabbi Nochaya is spending so much time first dividing, subdividing, creating the categories so that you can know how and when you actually have to do the right thing. So let's go back now to the actual words. Now we understand what Rabbi Nochaya is saying properly. He said some of the things are Toyella's Gufe Bovad. It's going to be your health, it's your wellness. Eating healthy, exercising taking medication, avoiding things like technology maybe, using or getting vaccinated or not. These kind of questions doesn't affect anybody else. Okay, how much betachet do I have to have? Can I say it doesn't affect anybody else? I can do whatever I want. It's my body. I can smoke. I can drink. I can use every kind of unhealthy technology. Oh, no vaccines for me. Maybe, I don't know. It's my body. It's my health. It's my life. Not really. Your life doesn't belong to you. It's Hashem's life. What am I obligated to do? And at what point do I say, it's your body. It's your life. I did my part. I rely on Hashem for the rest. Hashani, the second thing is So now I have to do things like a livelihood. Different things that I have to do by means of gaining wealth or affluence, to have financial wherewithal, to purchase assets. How much am I required to do? Can I buy a house blindly or should I have somebody come and check it out? So, well, you know, people can always lie anyway. And even if the house is in perfect shape now, a year from now, there can be cracks that develop in the foundation and nobody knew anything about it. I mean, there are things like that that happen. So why should I bow do my research? I'll leave it in God's hands. Can you say that? Do you have to get a geologist to do a study of what's going on a hundred yards beneath your home to see if there's going to be a sinkhole in 50 years from now? Or is that like mad scientist style living. What is considered reasonable? Every arena, every category, every part of life has a different litmus, a different sort of measuring or yardstick for what's reasonable and what's not. Or what's expected of me and what I put in Hashem's hands. The third thing is my obligations, my responsibilities to others. He says, first, the welfare of my family, my children, the ishtai, 
interesting to me that he first talks about family and then he talks about wife. Some people get bent, their nose bent out of shape here. So, oh, you're supposed to care about your wife more than your children. So I was thinking that um, there's a very interesting verse that's found in the book of Bereshus, Genesis 31, Parshas Vayetze. It talks about Father Jacob. And it says that Father Jacob loaded up his camels because he was going home. He put his children, and then he loaded up. He had four wives. He put his wives. So Rashi says, hey, what's going on over here? Why did he first put his children, and then he took care of his wives? And with Esau, it says exactly the opposite. The first took care of his wives, and then took care of his children. Was Esau, the rapist, a better gentleman? No, Rashi says, don't be silly. This is the way it has to be done. What does that mean? Well, Rashi doesn't explain it. But the Maskele David, one of many explanations of Rashi, explains the following. Yaakov understood that his primary responsibility was to educate his children. He didn't spend the vast amount of his family time, you know, in, uh, spending romancing his wife. There was their intimate time, the time that they had, but the primary focus of his time was he had an obligation to educate his children and to raise them. That was his first source of attention. Esau. Esau was like, you know, he's living in a movie. He was always involved in some kind of intimate thing. It was always like from romance to romance, from lust to lust. Esau hiked him Nashov because he was like a very uh, engaged in intimate conduct. He was immersed in licentiousness. So, really, I think this is the origin of where Rabbeinu B'chai gets this from, because everything we know is perfectly arranged. He says, you have a responsibility. How responsible am I to my children? Should I quit my job and spend my whole day trying to raise my children? And will I be guaranteed that they won't come across some negative influence? Maybe the therapist I sent him to is actually a monster. So many tragic stories. I couldn't even have done the research. Everybody said he was a fantastic person. Everybody said she was great. And it turns out after 40 years, the person was a monster. Parents, so heartbroken. They meant best. They meant well. Do you walk around demoralized, beating yourself up for the rest of your life? Or do you say, I did my part? Did you do your part? Could you have done better research? Did you yell and scream at the kids? Unnecessarily. And in doing so, kind of spoil their childhood. Make marks on their soul that they didn't need to have. Sometimes it's not something you did, but it's a sin of omission. You were never there for the kids. I gotta make a living. I gotta go daven. I gotta go learn. So how much time am I supposed to do this and how much time am I supposed to be doing that? I'm glad you asked, says Urbana Bahaya. Stay with the program. I'm going to talk about that. How much time is one expected to invest in building his or her marriage? Good question. How about friendship, social interactions? How important is that? Do I say, you know, if I'm going to have good friends, God will send good friends my way. Or do I have to seek out good friends? Relatives? It's not easy to have family relationships. Do I say, well, you know what? If the family doesn't get along with me, so be it. I don't care. Can't be bothered. Or is it important for me to invest in building family relationships? Kroivov, Oyhavov, 
Oy vov. How do you deal with your adversaries? Do I kowtow to them? Do I, do, I, do, I, do I give in? Do I just lock them out of my life? Say, if God wants them to hurt me, then that's God's business. Am I required to make overtures? Try to make peace? These are real questions. Each one of these circumstances and situations requires or necessitates an individually tailored betochen strategy. Rabbeinu Bechaya is going to give us the ability to form that strategy in our own lives. You're going to know the right thing to do. But first he has to identify the arenas. We have to even understand what the issues are. And then we can chart the course. What about those who are higher than me? Or or lower than me? What does that mean? Well, the Marpel and Nefesh puts it, he says, you know, people who are more prominent. Do I have to be respectful to people more prominent? Do I have to treat this guy nice because, hey, you know, he's a powerful person? Or, poof, do whatever I want. If it's coming my way, it'll be coming anyway. If it's not, then it's not coming anyway. I don't have to be going out of my way to respect somebody more just because they're powerful or prominent. What if there's somebody who I need something from? The Teuvah Levanen says, you know, God do means kishivakish chefetz mem. They have the keys to my job. Do I have to curry favor? Do I say, hey, I'm doing my job. If I'm supposed to have the job, I'll have it. I'm not going to give any gifts to my boss. I'm not going to go out of my way to be nice to him. He doesn't give me a livelihood. God gives me a livelihood. Or, what are you, an idiot? He's your boss. Treat your boss in a proper fashion. Yes, you need to be subservient. You're an employee. Get with the program. That's the way it goes. Me? I don't bow down to anybody. I bow down only to Hashem. I don't have to be respectful to my boss. I tell my boss in his face that if I'm going to lose my job on that, so be it. What are you, nuts? Who's right? It's a good question. Rabbeinu B'chaya will help us to figure out precisely that. What about those who are, they need me? Well, they need me, let them... Come and find me. How available do I have to make myself? Or do I have to do my part? These are like, he's going to troubleshoot the fine details of these kinds of social interactions. The Monas Halavavi speaks about somebody who is an indentured laborer or an indentured owner. There's real power attached to that. But really nobody has power other than Hashem. This is the question. And then there are the spiritual things, which are the bridge to heaven, whose results you can't see. In Yoni Ha'ilam, Latoy Alois, the impact is in Ilam Hamba. It's in the other world. Whatever that means right now, we're not going to get into it. He says, This is all here, Yichokulishne Chalokim. Ah, Chadmem, one is Chavis Halavavis. If I don't love Hashem, I choose not to revere or respect Hashem, if I'm weak in my area of betochen, or powerful and strong in my betochen, if my amuna, if my faith is lackluster, subpar, or if my faith is fantastic, what difference does it make to anybody else? What difference does it make to anybody else if I choose to put on tefillin, or if I fast in Yom Kippur, or if I eat matzah? What difference does it make? I don't have to answer to anybody else. 
If I want to trust in Hashem, I'll trust in Hashem. I didn't check my tefillin. If God wants me to have kosher tefillin, there'll be kosher tefillin. Or no, you have an obligation. So listen, when I have an obligation to somebody else, there's another thing. That I'll make efforts for somebody else. For myself, I rely on Hashem for myself. Can you? Or not? That's a good question. As the Neda Bakredah says, these are Shuhu Misyachid Behem Levade. That's just for me, he says. Halavavavai, it's my heart, it's my feelings, it's my mind, my consciousness, it's a varav, it's my limbs. What are we talking about over here? Very simple. We're talking about things that are legufai, mila. Like circumcision. What difference does it make to anybody else? I told him to have a mezuzah, etc. And then there's certain things. So if I chose not to do it or I didn't make all the efforts possible, I didn't check my mezuzah. Who did it hurt? I live alone. Or... There's a chelik hasheni. There's the second level. And the second level is talking about something like the things that are chavis ha'ivorim, the bodily, like mitzvahs. Asher imo. You can't do this without somebody else willing to play the role, their part. He says, There's the doer, you, and then there's the recipient, the passive, so to speak, inter- the, the passive entity here. What is that talking about? Kitzedakah. Like when it comes to the mitzvah of tzedakah. So when it comes to the mitzvah of tzedakah, like the Marpa Nefer says, there's the poil and he poil. Hu oisa You're doing the act of tzedakah. But if you gave tzedakah and the poor person didn't take that tzedakah, you gave the poor person food and they chose not to eat it, is that your problem? I put the food on the table. I had to beg them to eat it? Jump in the lake. You don't want to eat food. Starve. It's my problem. Or, hey, you should have gone out of your way to make sure that somebody not only had the food, but felt good about eating it. How far does that go? How much of an obligation do I have? The Teva Levanan puts it so beautifully. He says, you must know that there are certain mitzvahs where your action is actually not the focus. For example, he says, like the mitzvah of tzedakah. The main mitzvah of is not that you gave till it hurt you. Like in some faith systems or some communities they say, give till it hurts. It's not about you. The highest form of tzedakah, as the Rambam says, is to give the kind of tzedakah that the person who got it doesn't know. The highest form of tzedakah. Rambam goes through in the end of laws of, mat, of the gifts to the poor in the 10th chapter. In the 7th halacha of the 10th chapter, he goes ahead and he says, that You know what that is? That you gave tzedakah as a loan. You never even lost anything. You gave a loan, 10 years later you got your money back. The highest form of tzedakah. Why? Because the person never had to pay with their dignity. And you helped somebody. Make a living. Well, if you look at tzedakah as how much did it cost me or how painful was it for me, the answer is not very. But if you look at tzedakah as the impact, how helpful was it for somebody else? That's the most helpful because the person doesn't feel like a charity case. A step below is when the person who gives doesn't know who he's giving to and the person who receives 
doesn't know who they're receiving from. Because when you know who you're getting the money from, it doesn't feel very good. And if you know, but you know they don't know, you don't feel ingratiated. You aren't robbed of your dignity. That, my dear friends, is the essence of tzedakah. So, how much do I have to go out of my way or say, you know what, if Hashem wants them to know, it's God's problem. I'm going to give tzedakah. I don't have to worry about that. The milis chasada, being kind to somebody else. Limud teaching wisdom. I taught. It's my problem to advertise this channel. You want to learn about betochen, it's available. I should worry about you. I should beg you to watch. Why am I doing that? Or, <laughs> maybe that's my responsibility. To try to get as many people as possible to learn these lessons. Let's What about instructing people to do good things? I gave instructions. I told them. I let them know. It's up to them. Or, did you make it palatable? Did you think about how they might receive it so that you could frame your words a little more carefully? It's my problem. I leave that in Hashem's hands. I put the information out there. It's very real questions. How much is in my hands? Really none of it. Well, then how much effort do I have to make? That is precisely the question we're dealing with. If I can wag a finger at somebody and say, hey, you know how to do that. And the person says, am I allowed to do that? Eh, who are you to tell me that? Or maybe there's a more effective way. Maybe there's a better way to get somebody to change their bad behavior. Am I responsible to discuss this with a psychologist and work out a strategy? Or I leave that in Hashem's hands. These, my friends, are all real questions that will have to be answered if we are to achieve a successful, betochen-driven life. And that is how Rabbeinu Bachaya introduces Perik Dalad, the fourth chapter to us. He will now discuss the other category, and that's heaven or paradise, the afterlife, messianic age, remuneration, reward, consequences, results for mitzvahs. This too has to be clearly understood. This too requires a strategy of its own insofar as effort, focus, what I'm expected to do, and at what point I leave it in the hands of Hashem. With the best of my ability, Bezrat Hashem, I hope to be able to keep teaching, to keep sharing, to keep inspiring and educating you and myself as we continue our journey of learning to live with certainty, of learning how to trust HaKadosh Baruch Hu so that our lives can be all that Hashem actually wants them to be. Your feedback is so appreciated. Please like, share, send me a message. And if you haven't yet, please be so kind as to subscribe and share it with your friends and relatives, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Your participation means the world to me. I'm grateful for it. God bless you. Have a beautiful day, and I look forward to seeing you back. Bezrat Hashem. Kol Tov.